Well, we're all uh, familiar with that phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, it's a catchy phrase, and it's an accurate one. You know, Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Jesus. Now, the text we're going to be looking at this morning addresses what is the reason for Jesus? Why did he come? And I encourage you, by the way, to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, the text we're going to be looking at, verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. Now, we, we know the, the answer already, don't we, for why Jesus came. At least in this congregation, we know. It's to, he came to save us from sin. And that's, that's correct. What our text is going to help us understand is that there's more to the story. In fact, what it's going to help us, help us think about is identity. Has there ever been a question for you? Probably most of you older, my age by now, you've either figured it out or you don't care anymore who, who you are. But for a lot of people, that's a big, big question. Well, our text answers that question. It's not about kind of, well, am I, about the role that we play in life. Are we parents or are we students or this is the job I have. It's not about lifestyle, about whether I'm married or, or single. And it's definitely not about our gender identification or our ethnic identification. Now, you kind of take away all of those labels. And the real question that, this, again, this text has taken us to is, ultimately, who are we? Okay. Who are we? And for that matter, to whom do we belong or where do we belong? That's what we're looking at today. Now, again, taking our text, this letter, the whole letter of Galatians, is addressing a particular issue to, to that church there in Galatia. Paul had come. He had preached the gospel to the Galatian Gentiles. They were happy to receive it. They, they became believers. A church was established. And then Paul, because he's a, a traveling uh, apostle, missionary, he goes on somewhere else. Well, after he leaves, some other teachers come in and they have a different twist on the gospel that they teach the people. And it goes something like this. All right, Jesus, who, by the way, was the Messiah to the Jews. Now, maybe he's been offered to you non-Jews, you Gentiles. You who, biologically, by the way, you're not of God's covenant people. All right. Well, if you really want to be favored by God, if, if you want to belong to God's people, well, there's some stuff you've got to do. Namely, you've got to follow the law of Moses, including, by the way, all men. You need to be circumcised. Faith, that's fine. Faith in Jesus, that's good as far as it goes. But you can't really say that you belong to God if you do not come under his covenant law. It is the law, it is obeying the law that identifies you 
as belonging to God. Now, in his letter, Paul just, he just lambasts this thinking. The law, he says, has no place in our salvation, no place at all in attaining favor with God, or certainly not in making us his. But then he needs to answer the question, what then did the law do? And so that's what he's writing about. Again, let's now look at our text. He starts and says, now look, before faith came, before Jesus came and we had faith in him, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And by the way, for those of you who are visiting and you've opened up the the church Bibles, and you're seeing already and kind of reading different language. I'm using a different version, so but it's pretty much the same thing there. But Paul is saying this. Look, now think of it this way. Sin came into the world. We know that. We know, too, that sin became rampant in the world. How, then, could sin be restrained? Well, that's where the law came in. The law identified, first of all, what was sin, what was wrong to do. And then it provided measures to punish lawbreakers. I mean, that's what the law does everywhere. The law tells me that as much as I might like my neighbor's car, I cannot take my neighbor's car. And if I do take my neighbor's car, I will be punished. Therefore, I'm not going to take my neighbor's car because I do not want to be punished. So the law of Moses worked that way for the Jewish covenant people. And really, that's what the laws of all civilizations, they work in the same way. And for that matter, even without all of these laws, we have within us, don't we, a conscience that kind of is an inner law. And it works the same way. We know that it's not right, for example, to lie about our neighbor. And so if we, we do, if we break that law, most of us, we feel guilty about it. And we'll, we'll say to ourselves what a bad thing to do. And then we might even kind of punish ourselves in some way. So we, that's what law does. Tells us what's wrong. Punishes us. Or think of it another way, it, it kind of imprisons us. It's kind of like a, it's like a prison guard. And it's keeping us, in one sense, behind bars. So that we can't just do whatever we want to do. So that's what he's talking about here in this verse. But he then goes on to another imagery here in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian. Now, guardian sounds like a guard, a prison guard. But the Greek word here, it's it's the word pedagogue. And it's referring to a different image altogether. In those days, a pedagogue was typically actually a slave. But he was a slave who was responsible for the raising up of his master's son. So from about the age of six to adolescence, A slave was the son's guardian. He made sure he went to school. He accompanied him there and brought him back. He kept an eye on him to make sure that he did not 
go astray. So you can see the similar thought here. The slave was responsible that the son grew up knowing his responsibilities in life. He actually had disciplinary power over the son to keep him in line. The son had to obey the slave. So though the son was actually a master, he could not exercise his privilege of being master until he came of age. Until at that time he was granted fully his freedom, his righteous, I mean his rights and privileges and authority. So Paul's going to actually develop this thought further. And he does it in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. He says, look, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul then explains again that this was the purpose of the law. For a period of time, he served like whatever image you want to use, like a prison guard, or served as a guardian, keeping sin in check until the time that God had appointed for our freedom. So in verse 3, he goes on to say, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, he's speaking here, right here at this moment, to Gentiles. They don't have the law of Moses, but they do have those other laws that we're speaking of and the, the laws of the conscience. He's saying, look, we were, just in the same way the Jews were, we were enslaved to those things. We could not exercise our privilege. Now, when would the time of taking possession of our rights and privileges come? Paul is making a point. He says, it came. It came when Christ came. Back up with me. Chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So let's let's summarize here. Before Christ came, we all were under guardianship by law. In order that sin would at least somewhat be restrained in us. We were heirs of riches, but we could not access those riches. Now, salvation, even back then, was still by faith. But it was in the faith of a Savior still to come. And the obeying of the law and following of all that law was a means of foreshadowing and, and working out ways to, to, to look to the day for that Savior to come. But again, he's come. So now we've entered into full privileges that have been held in trust for us. The law is no longer our guardian. We're free from the law. We're free from it in the sense that we now belong fully to Christ. 
We're in the family. Christ then, why did he come? He came to give us our full inheritance. Give us all of our rights and privileges. But even that is not the full story. Because it actually gives an impression that Christ came to give us what was owed us. You kind of get the feeling right now, well, we're, we're all children of God. And actually, that's what people in the world believe. We're, we're all children of our Father, God. But I want you to, well, actually, before I even go further, I want to just stop for a moment. Paul's been using, and I've been using this term of, of sons. It came so that we may have the privileges of, of, of sons. And why are we using that term? Why are we saying of sons and daughters? Well, in that age and culture, it was sons, not the daughters, who received the inheritance from the fathers. So in this context, when Paul's talking about just receiving all that's due us, the, that inheritance, he's making clear, it doesn't matter whether you're Male or your female, you receive that full inheritance that a son receives from the father. That's why he will note in chapter 3, verse 27, in Christ, there is no male or female. We all get the same riches and bounties of our inheritance. Now, let me get back now to this thinking of our text. Like I said, right now, it gives the impression that we all already have that status of belonging to God. And we're simply waiting for Christ to come. And then when he comes, that legal work is completed and we get what is our inheritance. But there's a term that Paul uses that readjusts this thinking. I want you to go back, go with me now. I'm in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And did you catch what that term was? There at the end of verse 5, it was adoption. Christ came that we might receive adoption as sons. And the truth is, We never were sons in the first place. You see, this is where the analogy of the guardianship falls short. It was fine to kind of explain the role of the law, but it doesn't explain our status before God. Paul will explain more clearly elsewhere. If you want to know, he says, if you want to know our status without Christ. In Ephesians, he says, Well, before Christ, we were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. In Romans 6, he says, we were slaves, not of the law, we were slaves of sin. 
And in Romans 5, he says, we were ungodly. We were sinners. We were even enemies of God. If you want to talk about the inheritance that was awaiting us, the only inheritance awaiting us that was due us was God's wrath. So what has happened? God sent forth his son. Christ came. And he came to redeem us from our slavery to sin. He came to atone for our sins. He came to atone for our sins so that God might justify us. That he might declare us innocent. That's what he as a judge does. That's what justification is all about. Christ did more. He did the work that brought us into God's family. The true Son of God has made we who were sinners sons of God. And as Paul says in verse 7, we are no longer slaves, but sons. And now that we are sons, now, now we are heirs of all the riches of our Father. So let's think about those riches that we now have. Now, the greatest, or one of the great riches that we have is that we now know God is our Father. You know, it's actually because of Jesus. We don't, we today, we don't actually really appreciate fully that understanding of God as Father. And of course, God is our Father. What else would he be? But before Jesus came on the scene, God was not viewed in those terms. You're not going to look back in the Old Testament and, and find it. I mean, I think there's one reference in, in Isaiah that's speaking of Christ. But the Jews didn't refer to God as their father. He was Yahweh. He was Jehovah. The I am who I am. Indeed, his name was so holy. He was because he was so holy. They, they came up with other names because they didn't want to. Say that name out loud. God is the holy God. God is, is judge. God demands righteousness. That's why we have the law. You go to the Old Testament, it, one feared God. Rarely will you ever read in the Old Testament of anyone loving God. They, they feared God. So however much the Jews may have been thankful for, for God's steadfast love toward them. And they mention that again and again and again. And they're thankful that they belong to him as his people. Father was not in their vocabulary. And then comes Jesus. He speaks almost exclusively of his father. And he invites his followers to do the same. He says of my father and your Father, he teaches his followers to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. Indeed, he encourages his followers to pray because they should know that their Father will answer their children. You know, even today we might think of God in other terms, particularly when we think about our salvation. Because, again, how does the gospel story go? It goes like this. We were lost sinners. 
We deserve God's judgment. Instead, God took our punishment and we were declared innocent. Again, that's the doctrine of justification. And praise God for the truth that that doctrine teaches. But what the doctrine of adoption teaches is saying that this doctrine of justification is the primary, it's the foundation doctrine. But it's not the highest. The highest is this. That instead of just declaring us innocent and then we can just kind of go our way. Instead of just releasing us from prison and again, you, you're declared and, and do the best you can. He received us into his family. He's now our father. We are his children. And it's here where we grasp something more endearing. The adoption as sons mean not only that we have this new legal status, that we have, wow, a great inheritance. Adoption means that we are God's children. We're sons and we're daughters. With all the love that comes with that thought. We now call out to the the holy God, the majestic God of all that exists, we now call out to him, Abba, Daddy, Father. And he responds, my beloved child. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John writes in his first epistle and he adds, and so we are. And just as a child may come to his father, No matter how important that father happens to be, no matter how busy he may be, we may come to our Heavenly Father anytime, anywhere we may be, knowing that he listens to us, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he loves us more than even an earthly father can love. That's why Jesus came. That we might know the same love that he has known for eternity. As Jesus himself prayed near the end of his life, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Isn't that a great blessing? God is our Father. And furthermore, to be adopted is to know Christ as our brother. You know, Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's our champion who has won our salvation. He's, he's our Redeemer who has paid the price for us. He is our Lord, to whom we owe our worship and, and our allegiance. But this Savior and Lord is not ashamed to be called our brother. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, he is not ashamed to call us. Brothers and sisters, we belong to Jesus. Indeed, the only reason we belong to to God our Father is because we belong to Jesus. As, As Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Without Christ, we have no claim on God. He might be our creator and we are his creatures, but it's only because of Jesus coming to us, 
that we have, as John says in his first chapter, the right to become children of God. And now as our big brother, he identifies with us. He stands with us. He prays for us. He, he pleads our case. He protects us from our enemies. And he does so because we are his brothers and his and sisters. That's what family does. Again, Jesus prayed for us earnestly the night before his death. He prayed, as we have said, that, that we would know his father's love as he knew it. But he also prayed that we would know not only, not only this love, that we would know that he, Jesus, he's in us. We're united with our brother. We abide in him and he in us in deep, loving affection. Christ is not like the elder brother in that story of the prodigal son and he begrudging the love of his father for him, for his wayward brothers. He doesn't look at us and see that we are getting all these blessings and, and he sees us continually sinning and falling and, and turning away and then he, he's going to his father and saying, Really? These are my brothers and sisters? No. He is the brother who rejoices in our coming home. Who, who looks to that day where we're going to join him at the feasting table of all God's children. Of all those who have answered the call of the Son to believe in him. And so receive that right to become children of God. Aren't these great blessings? God is our Father. Christ is our brother. And then there is the Holy Spirit who is in us. To be adopted is to know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or for that matter, it is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we, that we know God as Father in such a dear way. What did Paul write in our text? And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is the spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that speaks to our spirits so that we know God is Father. Not because there's a doctrine that we can read about it in forms of the fact. Not only because we can, we can read about it and it tells us that. But what Paul is saying is, because we feel it. We feel it in our hearts. He said the same thing in Romans 8.15. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into, into fear. You don't have that spirit of slavery anymore in which you keep worrying about, are you going to be good enough? Are you going to fall out of favor? No. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And because you receive it is by whom that spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We call the Father, we call God the Father. And it feels right because, because his spirit makes it feel right. God, our Father, our brother, I have that Holy Spirit. And all of this is just a, kind of a long way of saying that we belong. That to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit. It is to belong to the Father. 
It is to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's go back to those false teachers in Galatians. They were trying to tell these Gentile believers that they were second-class family members. If you're going to be part of the family, they at least look at it as second-class. And, and again, if you're going to be accepted, you've got to follow the rules. You've got to follow the rules that, that we have always had to follow. And by saying that, these teachers were revealing, boy, they had missed the gospel altogether. To believe that belonging to the covenant people of God means abiding to the rules. Well, it means they don't really have the spirit of Christ in them. They were like that elder brother of, of Jesus' parable. The one who was thinking that, well, look, Clara, I've been good and, and I've been following all the rules. And, and he's thinking that's what made him a son or at least allowed him to inherit his riches. But no. Christ came that we might have the right to be called sons of God. Our brother did the work of obedience. He obeyed the rules. He fulfilled all the conditions of the law so that we could be adopted by God. So that we might now be accepted by God our Father accepted by our Father as as sons, fully with the full inheritance that comes with that. But even more dear to us, to be accepted by God as his beloved children. There is nothing in the family of God, there's nothing to prove. There is no favor to win. God does not look upon us with his arms folded, waiting to see if we're going to be good enough to claim his name and to claim his affection. He loves us because we're his children. And we know it to be so because the spirit of his son attests to our very hearts that it is so. And let me speak to any who who might be puzzled by all this. You might be one who is yet to to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Or you might be one because, you know, you you grow up in church and you've always accepted the the doctrines of the Christian faith, and yet this, this crying out to God as Abba Father, this, this feeling of being loved, being deeply cared for by God, as a loving father loves and cares for his children, you can honestly say that you have ever felt that way. Well, understand the reason for this season. Jesus came as a child of earthly parents so that we might become children of our heavenly father, just as he knows his father. That prayer near the end of his life was that we, again, might know this love. And he has sent his spirit so that we might even feel this love. Such fatherly love is offered to you. If you will but cry out to Abba, Father, through his son, Jesus Christ. 
God gave his son to us. Will he not also give his spirit by which we can know his son and then through his son know him? This Christmas, it is my prayer that you would receive the gift of the son of God himself. And thus receiving such a gift, you will receive the wondrous blessing of becoming a son, becoming a beloved child of God the Father. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our brother. For one who gave up all of that glory in heaven to become as one of us, to become our brother. We thank you for the work that he has won for us so that we might come before you now. As as your children, come to the great God as our Father. Oh, we thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.